Good morning. My name is Don Pizzotta, and I serve as one of the elders here at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church. So if you have your copy of Scripture, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles provided uh, in the seat in front of you or in the pew in front of you, you can find today's passage on page 981. Or maybe not. Yes, 980 and 981. While you're turning there, as a reminder, for the rest of the year, we are focusing on what it means to enjoy the gospel in the context of our mission statement that as a church, we want to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy, live, and proclaim the gospel. This morning, we are continuing our series in Philippians. As Jesse shared last two weeks ago, he shared with us insights into how that we can experience joy as a community of the gospel in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Last week, Pastor Stephen shared with us how we experience joy when Christ is proclaimed from chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. That brings us to this morning's passage in Philippians chapter 2. We are going to explore how we can experience joy in unity and humility. Follow along with me as I read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning again for this opportunity that we have to come together to worship you. And Father, we thank you for your Word. We pray now that our eyes and ears would be open to your Word and that your Word would penetrate our hearts so that we might be more and more transformed into the image of your Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, again, if, if you've been with us the past few weeks, you, you might remember that Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and he's writing from prison. It's also helpful to think of the overall outline of the book of Philippians, the letter that Paul writes. So I mentioned in the opening that Jesse preached a couple of weeks ago from chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. That was Paul's opening or greeting. It's the main point that Jesse shared with us 
was that one of the sources of our joy, one of the ways that believers can experience joy, is in the community of the gospel. Like right here and right now, this congregation, this fellowship of believers. Paul then shifts from that to the opening of the main point of his letter. And Stephen helped us to see that when he covered chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, where Paul shows us that we experience joy when Christ is proclaimed, when the gospel is shared by that community of believers. And that brings us to this morning. And what I want us to see in in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, is that Paul is going to call us or show us how we can experience joy in unity and humility. In fact, Paul exhorts the believers in Philippi to complete his joy by walking in unity and humility. And as a result, that church will experience the same kind of joy. I want us to consider our passage this morning under this main idea of joy in two points. So the theme of joy and then two points. First, Paul's command to strive for unity. And the second point, Paul's command to strive for humility. As we consider those two points under the main idea of joy, I want, us to, I want to remind you of, of a couple of things, something that both Jesse and Stephen already shared with us. This idea with reference to joy that the Bible is proclaiming is not about a feeling or an emotion. Joy is more than just simply a feeling. Instead, the Bible teaches us that joy is an attitude, it's a mindset, it's a posture. We can say it this way. It's a fruit of the Spirit, meaning something that is produced in us. And it's a fruit that indicates a right standing or a right relationship with God. God knows joy. God wants his people to know joy. And we are commanded to know joy, to keep an attitude or maintain a posture of joy. In fact, the the pages of Scripture are full of joy. The word for joy in the original languages is used or found over 150 times. If you add to that or include joyous and joyful, the number exceeds 200. And add to that, if we use the verb rejoice, Again, that word alone over 200 times throughout Scripture. Joy is more than just a feeling. It's an attitude, and we are commanded to understand and maintain and have a posture of joy. It's also important for us to acknowledge, as we come together in corporate worship, that the joy that the Bible speaks of comes into extreme focus in the person of Jesus Christ. Consider one of the most famous passages on joy. It's the announcement of the arrival of Jesus by the angel to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Luke records, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Jesus ushers in joy. I mean, we sing joy to the world, right? A song is, it has meaning. There's joy behind it. And Jesus is the usher of that joy. 
Now, our passage this morning has much to say about unity and humility in verses 1 through 4. And right up front, right at the beginning of the, the letter, Paul lays it out for us. Right around those two points, Paul says, and he exhorts the church. He commands the church to do what? To complete his joy. And Paul's point here is that in order for his joy to be complete, or in other words, in order for Paul to experience a fullness of joy, the church in Philippi must be united. And that brings us straight to our first point, Paul's command to strive for unity. Look there at the text again, chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I want us to look there at the very first word of verse 1. The first word is so. You're like, so? Yes, so. Another way to translate that, though, is therefore. Some of your Bibles might actually say therefore. And then notice that the passage takes on an if-then structure, followed by a list of attitudes or mindsets. We can say it this way. So if there is any of these blessings in Christ, then complete my joy by behaving in these ways. So I want to start with that so or that therefore in, in verse 1. And in this passage, Paul is actually using that so to point us in three different directions. He's going to point us in three different directions. The first direction is way forward. And then backwards, and then just forward. All right, so three directions. Let's look really quickly at the so in verse in chapter one, uh, chapter two verse one, pointing way forward. Quickly turn over to chapter four verses one through three. Paul writes there, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. Thus in the Lord, my beloved, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, this passage will be covered at a later date, so I don't want to spend uh, any time on, on the passage itself, but just know this, that Paul is talking about the joy and unity and humility of the church all the way through the letter. It's a central theme to the letter written to the church in Philippi. But I do want to take a closer look at the so in chapter 2, verse 1, and how it is pointing us backward. Remember last week, Stephen covered 1, 12 through 20. Philippians chapter 1, 12 through 20. So I want us to look backward, and we'll pick it up at the end of chapter 1, verse 18. The word yes, yes I will rejoice, is the end of verse 18. Look there at the text, and Paul says, Yes, I will, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, 
Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you, with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents." This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you, that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. What an amazing passage of Scripture. Like, is Paul really saying that he is struggling with the idea of living and dying? He is, and he's finishing up this idea that Stephen shared with us, again, that we experience joy when Christ is proclaimed. We see it really flushed out in chapter 1, verses 25 and 26. Paul says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. I know that I'm going to live for your progress and joy in what? In the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. In chapter 1, verses 21 through 26, Paul wants the church to understand beyond all shadow of a doubt, yes, I would be better off, far better off if I were to be called home to be with the Lord. And then he announces this struggle that he's having with, with this idea to live is Christ, to die is gain. But what convinces Paul to stay? What convinces Paul that his living is more appropriate and more needed. Well, Jesus does. The gospel does. Look there again at chapter 1, verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Paul's actually not done there either. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened at anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now remember, this is all tied to that one two-letter word at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. So, and let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, in verse 27, is the thesis statement or the main point of Paul's entire letter written to the church in Philippi. Everything that Paul says up to verse 27 
And everything that he says after verse 27 is centered on that. Paul will go on to further develop and support and explain this main point throughout the rest of the letter. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We can actually say it this way. Consider yourself a citizen of God's kingdom in a way that lets everyone around you know that you have heard and received and believed and are committed to and, yes, enjoying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? It sounds great, it, it re- and, 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 it's in, and it's in Scripture, and it should stir us. But how do we do it? Paul tells us exactly how we do it. Verse 27 again, how? By standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened at anything by your opponents. It sounds an awful lot like Paul is calling the church to unity. It sounds like an exhortation or a command to unity. Stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, and not frightened. All for the faith of the gospel, for faith in the gospel. It's unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So summarize that, that, that all up. So, so Paul's saying, sticking around for the church, I'm doing it. I'm going to stick around for the church's progress and joy in the faith. And then he exhorts them to live worthy of the gospel by standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And don't be scared. Do not be frightened about anything. Not when you're persecuted, not when you face suffering, not when you're thrown in prison, not when you're stoned, starved. It doesn't matter. No, don't be afraid in anything. Because why? It's a sure sign of your salvation and their destruction. Standing firm, sure sign. Side by side, sure sign. Unafraid is a sure sign. And all of this, all of this intended to imply and outright tell us that we must be united. It's with each other as a local body, as a community of believers in Christ Jesus. Okay, so remember I said the so in in 2.1 points us. I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on one word. And it's important because that was the backward. We covered the way forward and the backward. Now I want to just cover specifically just forward in verse Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, so if there is any. It's important for us to understand that Paul is not doubting what he's about to say. Paul isn't doubting that these things that he says in chapter 2, verse 1 are true. Instead, it's a a trick that Paul is using uh, the language for. It's really like he's asking a series of questions. I want you to look at it in in, in this manner. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So, is there any encouragement in Christ? And the Philippian church has no other way to answer but to say yes. Is there any comfort from love? The answer, yes. Is there any participation in the Spirit? Yes. Any affection? Yes. Any sympathy? Yes. Based on what Paul just said in chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, Paul says he's sticking around for the church's progress and joy. 
And then he says, live worthy of the gospel by standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side, and don't be afraid. Don't be frightened by anything. In other words, Paul is setting himself up as an example here. He's, he, he is, after all, writing from prison. He's in bondage. He's under persecution and suffering. And he says to the church in Philippi, surely you can find encouragement, love, participation in the Spirit, affection, and sympathy in Christ because I have. In everything that I have faced, in everything that you know that I faced and still am facing, I found those things in Jesus Christ. And you can too. And then what? Paul says in chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy. And then in very similar language, says complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. These are the attitudes or mindsets that we mentioned earlier. Do you, do you see it in the text? Do you see the call to unity here? Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind, just as Paul said in, in chapter 1, verse 27. Stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. It's repeated in chapter 4, verse uh, 1 through 3 that we covered earlier. And then I want you to think back again to chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, where Jesse pulled everything together for us two weeks ago. Paul says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In chapter 2, verse 2, and even verse 3, Paul is talking about the same fruit of righteousness from chapter 1. What are these fruits? Be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord, and again, one mind. So, we must be united. Our progress and joy in the faith are built on a foundation of unity. I want us to see the build-up, too. Again, Jesse shared in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, joy in fellowship or community of the gospel. And then Stephen jumps in off the top rope and he shares with us that we experience joy when Christ is proclaimed, when the gospel is shared. And now we're talking about joy and unity around what? Around Christ and each other. Around this fellowship or community of believers. The, the fellowship that we identify with. And our fellowship is designed and commanded to proclaim Christ. Here, here's a sneak peek at a bold truth. The basis of our foundation in unity is not us. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news. Now, it's no secret that disunity and discord are incompatible with the Christian life. No one should be surprised by that. There is no way for a Christian to believe that they can make it on their own with no fellowship with other believers. There's no way. We are designed to live in community. We are made to live in community. There's also no, that, no way that we can take part in the advance of the gospel 
if we are not united to one another as a local church, as a community of believers. Our joy is intimately tied to that. If there's something off in our relationship to other believers, or we're not united with one another, then necessarily there is something off in our relationship to God. There's, there really is no other way to look at that. Whether we were the one wronged or slighted, whether somebody made us mad or angry, the, the situation is irrelevant in that we should always, as believers, be eager to seek out reconciliation, and we should always strive for unity. The love and compassion and sympathy and mercy and grace that we as believers have been shown through Christ makes it impossible to harbor any ill feelings towards another Christian, towards another believer in Jesus. As family, a friend, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, it's impossible. We must strive to be united, first with God through Christ, and then next with one another. Our joy is intimately linked to it, and it's a heart issue. One commentator says, quote, This unity that the Scriptures so highly exalts is inward, not outward. It is internally desired, not externally compelled. It is spiritual, not ecclesiastical, more heartfelt than creedal. It is not grounded in sentimentalism, but in careful, thoughtful, and determined obedience to God's will. It is the Spirit-motivated and Spirit-empowered bonding of the hearts, minds, and souls of God's children to each other. And preserving unity in the church is not optional." End quote. We are being called here to rejoice in and unite around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unity is critical. And that brings us to our second point, Paul's command to strive for humility. Paul wants the church to understand here that in order to live our lives as Christians, in order to be joyful and for his joy to be completed, and even for our, our, our joy to be completed, we must be united, and unity exists in concert with humility. Look at the text again, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, we know from Scripture, in fact, several weeks ago, Pastor Bert, our lead pastor, shared with us from Deuteronomy chapter 6 that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, and might. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 22 that the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And the second is like it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Love with all that you are, heart, strength, soul, and mind. And I mention these truths because, again, Paul is communicating in chapter 2 a mindset. It's an attitude of unity and humility. It really starts back in, 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 it really starts in verse 2 where we see six different ways that we should act or set our minds to. Verse 2 says, have the same love. Again, being in full accord. Verse 2 again, be of one mind. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Verse 3 again, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. 
And verse 4, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, here's a good, uh, a good spot to ask the question, what is humility? Paul actually tells us exactly what humility is. A humble person does nothing from selfish ambition. Again, remember back to chapter 1. We saw Paul talking about others who preached Christ out of rivalry, envy, and selfish ambition. Yeah, so don't be like those, those folks. Don't do that. Paul also says that a humble person counts others more significant than themselves. And the word count there is going to be repeated a little bit further down in verse 6. And in the original language means to consider or regard. So consider others more significant than yourself. This is a little bit tough. Paul is not telling the church that they are to walk around and self-deprecate or belittle themselves. This is not about a skill level. It's not Michael Jordan walking up to LeBron James in an attempt to be humble and saying, you're better than me, because we all know that's not true. (laughs) It's not Nick Saban walking up to Kirby. You get it. You get it. It's not about skill level. It's also not about morality. Humility is not constantly walking around telling everyone how depraved you are. Now, I don't mean that we're not depraved because we are. Scripture teaches us that about our nature. But the humility Paul is talking about is about service. It's not about walking into the local prison and telling the murderers that they're better than you. That that, that wouldn't be true from a moral perspective. It is about service to one another. If, If we think about this, humility, simply put, if you're walking around telling everybody anything about yourself, you're making it about you in that process. And that's not being humble. It's a bunch of other things, but it's not humble at all. Paul says that we are to regard others more significant than ourselves to the point that we are to serve others with love and humility. Paul also says in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, this is a, even a little bit harder truth. It doesn't just go against our nature. It grinds against it. So you're like, Don, did you mean to say that Paul is actually saying that looking out for number one, numero uno, is bad advice? Absolutely it is. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. The great preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, was once asked, how does one become humble? Jones answered in a way that only he could. He said, quote, a friend was asking me the other day, how can I be humble? He felt there was pride in him, and he wanted to know how to get rid of it. He seemed to think that I had some patent remedy and could tell him, do this, that, and the other, and you will be humble. I said, I have no method or technique. I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know you soon will be proud of that too. There is only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. That is the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. 
Rather, you look at him and you realize who he is and what he has done, and you are humbled. End quote. Paul has been building to this point for several verses from the beginning of chapter one. His call to unity and now to humility leads us to one of the most majestic passages in all of Scripture. Several years ago, our lead pastor, again, Pastor Bert, preached on this passage, and he likened it this way, paraphrasing. If we were to think of Scripture as a majestic mountain range, this passage in Philippians would be one of the most majestic and glorious peaks. Look at the text, and we'll pick it up in verse 5. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. I want to start with verse 5. And I think the CSB translation is actually a little bit more helpful here. Verse 5 in the Christian Standard Bible says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, and pause there. Again, Paul is pointing us to a mindset. It's an attitude. Just like we mentioned several times the last couple weeks, joy itself is an attitude. It's not a feeling or an emotion. Unity and humility are attitudes and mindsets. Their heart and internal issues, not external. So, Paul is pointing us to the attitude of Christ, to the mindset of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God. Many of you might be familiar with the Gospel of John. And in that account, John, in chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The Bible tells us that Jesus is fully God and fully man, though he was in the form of God. Again, back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. He was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by becoming or by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is why we call Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. And then again, we see, a, we see the word count here. We saw it in verse 3 when Paul was instructing the church, and now he points to Christ. Jesus did not consider or regard himself in a way that was equal with God a thing to be grasped. Paul is painting a portrait of Jesus. He's saying that Jesus is fully God. He's saying that he lowered himself, humbling himself, not counting equality with the Father a thing to be grasped, and taking the lowly form of a servant. 
He could have come as a conquering king. He did not. He came as a servant. And then verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Another repeated word, humbled, like in verse 3, in humility count others, same word. So Paul here is actually using Jesus as an example or a model. And that's okay because Jesus is the ultimate example. He's a better Adam, the best Adam, the best Moses, the best high priest, the best sacrifice, the best prophet, the best example, always best, always more, never less. If we want to be humble, we look to Jesus. He's God, but he didn't consider it. He's God, but he came as a servant. He's God, but he came to obey. Jesus is God, but he came to die. Jesus is God, and he came to die in the most painful and excruciating way possibly ever devised. The cross of Jesus is the climax of the humility of the Savior. The cross is proof of the obedience of the Son to the Father. And know this, that cruel and shameful and painful death was for your sin, for your sin and for mine. Jesus' obedience to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross, was not because of his sin. He was sinless, perfect, and untainted. Yet he took on the sins of you and me willingly. If we want to know what humility looks like, look to Jesus. Look to the cross of Christ and catch a glimpse of humility. The Son of God was completely and fully crushed at the cross, physically crushed, completely, emotionally humiliated, spiritually completely abandoned. The Father turned his face away, and Jesus knew it was coming, and he did it anyway. We cannot have the gospel of Jesus. We can't have the good news without the cross. There's no gospel without the humiliation of Jesus. His obedience to willingly humble himself for the salvation of those who the Father had given to him. But the author of Hebrews also tells us that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. We, this is hard to understand sometimes, but we have to get it. Jesus was nailed to the cross. He suffered the punishment that we deserve. He suffered the wrath of God so that we might be redeemed. He was our substitute. He took on our sins, our punishment that we deserved. And he endured it all, despising the shame. And it was all for the joy that was set before him. His obedience to the Father to the point of death on a cross was for the joy that was set before him. And then Paul tells us in verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see the love of the Father unfold right here in front of us. God has highly exalted him. The Son absolutely and completely lowered himself to the lowest of lows. Therefore, it's supremely fitting that God the Father should exalt him to the highest of highs. What do I mean by that? He's not done. The Father's not done here. The highest of highs includes he bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The above every name name is the name of Yahweh. God's name. And for what purpose does he do that? So that every knee should bow and so that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This passage is taken directly from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, says, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Paul takes this Old Testament truth, a truth that can only be applied to Yahweh, to God. He takes this truth and by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in amazing and exalting fashion, applies it directly to Jesus Christ. God the Father exalting the Son and His deity is found all throughout Scripture. Paul, when writing to the Colossians, tells the church there of the deity of Christ in Colossians 1.15, saying, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I mentioned earlier the Gospel of John, and in John chapter 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in John 17, as Jesus was preparing to go to the cross, in his high priestly prayer, he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Father, I desire that they also, that is, believers, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And finally, again, in, in the, the author of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, God says in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance and the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When Paul in Philippians highlights the need for humility, reminding the church of Jesus and all that he is, all that he is going to remain and all that he has accomplished, he's clearly calling for humility. Have this mind, adopt this same attitude as Jesus. But Paul is also very intentionally tying that passage in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, all of its majesty to the attitude and mindset of joy and unity. Jesus himself had joy. 
and unity in mind when he prayed that prayer in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. Listen to some of the other things that Jesus prays there in chapter 17 of John. But now I am coming to you, he says, and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy, my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus is praying for the joy of the church, the joy of us, for joy that we find in him. Jesus also prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus is praying for unity there. He's praying for the unity of the church with Christ, with each other, as, just as the Son is united to the Father. They are one. Friends, we are called to rejoice and to maintain a mindset of joy that is found in unity with one another around the gospel of Jesus Christ in the community of believers. And we're called to do that by serving one another in humility, just as Christ humbly serves us. The same mindset of Jesus. We ought to strive to be a church that models that. We ought to strive to be a church that fights for gospel unity and that submits to one another in humility. As we pray to be more and more transformed into the image of Jesus for the glory of God the Father. Let's pray now that by God's grace we might know this joy and unity and humility. Father, we humbly thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you for your son Jesus for his life, death, and resurrection. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, we might more and more keep an attitude of joy. That we might more and more be united to one another around the gospel of your Son, Jesus. And that we might more and more seek to serve one another with humility and love. Father, make us one. Unite us through the finished work of the cross and unite us around an unbreakable faith in your Son, that we might adopt the same mindset of humility that he so lovingly showed us. Father, we pray that our joy would be a beacon of light to those around us and that we would strive for unity and humility so that we might glorify you. We ask this in the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ our Lord.